Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on the project and a PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities initiative from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Ian Miller, lecturer at Ulster University, and we shall be looking at the Industrial Revolution in Belfast. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. So when did the Industrial Revolution occur in Belfast? Well, the Industrial Revolution began to occur in the early 19th century in Belfast. Unlike many other cities, cotton spinning was the initial stimulus for industrialisation. This peaked in the 1820s when there was about 3,500 people employed in over 20 mills. Uh, But gradually over the decades, Belfast became a leading international producer of linen and flax. By 1860, Belfast had 32 operating linen mills and had earned itself the title of Linenopolis. Of course, the working class men, shipbuilding became a very important source of employment. Between 1839 and 1849, the city's harbour was considerably improved. An area was set apart for shipbuilding, later occupied, of course, by Harland and Wolfe. So Belfast swiftly transforms into Ireland's largest port. So how did industrialisation and urbanisation affect the spread of infection? Well, Belfast's population really grew dramatically throughout the century. In 1841, Belfast had a population of just 75,000 people. By 1911, this had risen to nearly 387,000. So that's a dramatic increase in the population. And of course, a population increase naturally means that diseases can spread much more quickly than in smaller communities. Of course, people came to Belfast to work in the city's industries. There was a lack of industrialisation elsewhere in much of Ireland. So again, that encouraged people to migrate to the North's industrial capital, often for work. Like all Victorian industrial centres, wealth and poverty coexisted. For many, industry brought progress and affluence. But for many others, urban living conditions threatened a return uh, to an almost medieval lifestyle of plagues and primitivism. Writing in 1852, Andrew George Malcolm, a prominent local doctor, working at Belfast General Hospital, said, when we consider that little more than 20 years ago, we could boast of but a single flax spinning factory, and that now upwards of 40 tall chimneys spring from similar establishments, it's little wonder we should find disease, and especially epidemic disease, on the increase. And Malcolm added, to give accommodation to the thousands of factory operatives, which the giant demand of a prosperous manufacturer created, strings of houses on the simplest plan were hurried up generally without sufficient carefulness as to drainage, ventilation, house wants or situation. We can see from this quote that rapid urbanisation was placing much pressure on housing, water supplies, public health and natural environments. There was ever-growing numbers of families living side by side. That meant the disease could spread quickly, especially during an epidemic outbreak, which which were much more common in the Victorian period. And this was a hazardous situation also because the cause of most human infections, germs, remained unknown until the 1850s. And even then, it took some decades to convince the old doctors that germs and not miasmas or smells produced disease. But even once doctors had agreed that germs were the problem, there was no cures available for anyone who'd found themselves infected until well into the 20th century. 
So for the time being, disease prevention was the only option available for the Victorians. And what health problems did rivers create? Well, Belfast rivers filled quickly with industrial pollution and human sewage as well. The city's doctors knew that polluted rivers were hardly conducive to health, although they didn't quite know why yet. They hadn't figured out that some diseases, such as cholera, are waterborne. Uh, So one physician, Henry McCormick, attracted praise for successfully helping to manage Belfast's 1831-2 cholera outbreak. He went on to secure a lectureship at Queen's College and gained a good international reputation as a medical expert. In 1852, he speaks to the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and he refers to the River Blackstaff, which then ran through the middle of Belfast. And he asked, who would believe that in a large, flourishing, intelligent town like Belfast, and in the very face of an approaching pestilence, a reference to cholera, a black sewer-like stream worse than the London fleet should be suffered to pollute the air with exaltations the most virulent and intolerable. Previously, the Blackstaff had carried fresh, clear water from nearby mountains and valleys, but there was new houses built near its banks in the 19th century, which meant that it gradually intersected with with open sewers. The river, in Malcolm's words, became the depository of nuisances of all kinds. There was also mills springing up and being built along its banks, which further worsened the problem. The water and the earth surrounding the river now gave off a sickening, pungent smell, and flooding was common. And the main problem there being that the contents of the black polluted river often overflowed into the nearby homes of workers. Throughout much of the century, fever incidences were notoriously high in areas such as Sandy Row, just by the river. In 1849, at a town hall meeting about the so-called Blackstaff nuisance, Reverend William Johnson reported visiting sick people while the water was within half an inch of the beds on which they were lying. So it's little wonder that the fever was endemic in areas such as Sandy Row at the time. But the situation remained roughly the same for decades. It's reported in 1865, the Border Guardians still reported a great unwillingness among Sandy Row residents to go to hospital if they fell sick. Um, with some justification, many families saw hospitals as insanitary places with little capacity to actually cure anyone who got infected. Also, the workhouse hospital was deeply stigmatised because of its connection to the poor law. So it's only in 1878 that a new act authorises the diversion of the river. Much of the river was built over and remains hidden underground to the day. Um, you might notice near Sandy Road there's a bridge with nothing running underneath it these days. But, but that's the area where the Blackstaff river, river ran. And it ran down roughly down today's Ormo Avenue to the Gasworks and out to the sea. And did anyone write about the health problems or living conditions that you have mentioned so far? Yeah, one of the most prominent books was actually written by a reverend, William Murphy O'Hanlon, and he publishes a book seen as scandalous at the time in 1853 entitled Walks Among the Poor of Belfast. In this, he warns that just next to Belfast's great city centre streets existed to quote him, social misery, vice and squalid poverty, which lurks in obscure dens within a few hundred yards of these more open ways. So O'Hanlon here depicts an urban geography that allowed the wealthy to go about their business, unaware of the dark and noisome haunts in the nearby city centre alleyways. So O'Hanlon goes and investigates Grattan Street, which is in the area now occupied by the Cathedral Quarter. And he came across one house in which seven people lived and slept without beds. And he wrote, the desolation and wretchedness of this apartment without windows and open in all directions, it is utterly impossible to describe. So we can see for too many people, particularly amongst the superb classes, the industrial revolution 
isn't really bringing civilization and advancement, but instead a return to more disease-ridden ways of life. Uh, but of course, there was no turning back to pre-industrial uh, life. Reports of poor health weren't really enough on their own to raise public opinion. So when discussing overcrowding, O'Hanlon carefully reported on families with mothers who had passed away, leaving the father living in cramped conditions with his surviving daughters. The implication here was incest, described by O'Hanlon as a loathsome social ulcer and a first step towards streetwalking and prostitution. So campaigners like O'Hanlon knew that lapsing sexual morals and not so much health usually spurred the middle class into action. So why was so little done initially to improve conditions? Interventions were made usually when cholera threatened the city and not so much at other times. For centuries cholera had been rife in the Indian subcontinent and the microorganism which causes cholera flourished in warm rivers and infected anyone who drank contaminated water. Improvements in global transport, also a product of the Industrial Revolution, meant that an outbreak that began in India in 1817 began to spread across Asia and Russia in the 1820s and finally arrived in Europe and North America in the 18th, of course, on to Belfast. And throughout the century, there was four major outbreaks in Europe and in Belfast, more specifically. One of these combined with the Irish famine. So between 1847 and 48, around 2,500 Belfast residents died of fever and dysentery, as well as cholera as well, and particularly in 1849. There was a sanitary committee formed, medical officers of health appointed and water fountains erected. But in 1849, a further 1,128 deaths from cholera. But medical officers at the time noticed that once the 1849 epidemic had passed away, the public became very apathetic and disinterested in, in public health and hygiene. And the sanitary committee that had been set up um, stopped receiving funding from the public. And the operation died from apathy and neglect. And, and O'Hanlon, too, also commented on the vast sensation produced in the public mind when cholera seemed to be on its way. But he argued, let, let us not forget the thousands who are dying around us by no sudden stroke it may be, but nevertheless, as the victims of filth, feral air and putridity. And again, Andrew Malcolm also comments in 1852 on, on the rapid loss of interest in sanitation after cholera passed during the famine. And did fear of cholera eventually improve how it was managed? Yeah, there's an interesting article published in the Belfast Newsletter in 1865, which warns that the nervous fear of cholera returning to Belfast was itself enough to trigger a disease just as fatal. And by then, it was obvious that cholera was spreading across Russia and was most likely going to come to Belfast at some point in the near future. But that statement, I think, reveals much about the mental anguish and emotional turmoil aroused even by suggestions that cholera might be on its way. In the 1860s, memories were still strong of the famine outbreaks and still fresh in many people's mind. So it seemed that anticipation could induce much emotional anxiety and maybe bring on what today we might call stress-related sicknesses. But in reality, by the mid-1860s, the Victorians were getting much better at managing disease. There was another sanitary committee appointed in 1865, again due to these fears of cholera. And when cholera did arrive in 1866, the following year, only 73 cases were reported and 33 deaths. So that's quite a high mortality rate, but you can see less people getting infected. And most of these infections were confined to areas with poor sanitation, unpaved streets and limited sewage arrangements. Obviously, disease outbreaks impacted greatest upon Belfast poorer classes, 
But the middle classes knew that contagion did not have any respect for class boundaries. It was common for public health reformers to appeal to the wealthy and remind them that disease might spread from impoverished areas into the middle class homes. And so I want to use one example. It um, relates to Hercules Street, which was an area roughly where Royal Avenue is today, which was home to nearly 50 butchers and slaughterhouses. It was usually littered with animal waste and carcasses. It was a perfect environment for disease to spread. And in 1865, the Belfast newsletter warns that it's not possible to quarantine this area with such a large number of people um, in it, and that nothing will stop cholera from spreading from Hercules Street to the pleasant terraces and fashionable suburbs. Of course, for labourers, life had to carry on, regardless of the threats of infection. You couldn't work at home or social distance in this period, and families still needed to go out to work to earn income to survive, even if a disease such as cholera was rife in the community. But of course, the cramped conditions in which labourers worked and lived increased their exposure to infection. The Belfast newsletter warned that Hercules himself would fail to cleanse the alleys that border on the street called after his name and called for the street to be swept away. And eventually it was in 1880, the street was widened, improved and renamed. But by then, the great cholera pandemics had already ended. Regardless, many people believe that the new buildings emerging around Royal Avenue, later to be joined by the new City Hall, were built first and foremost by the corporation as symbols of civic pride and not so much due to any genuine concern about the health of its former residents. Ian, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that was a really fascinating introduction to the Industrial Revolution in Belfast. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.